Hello and welcome to our At Any Rate Emerging Markets Focus podcast, the place for us to discuss recent developments and key issues of focus in the emerging market fixed income asset class. I'm Johnny Goulden from the Emerging Market Strategy team here at JP Morgan, and I'm joined by Saad Siddiqui, another senior emerging market strategist for the group. So Saad, thanks for joining, and it's been a few weeks actually since we managed to do one of these. Hi, Johnny. Yes, uh, good to be here again. Uh, we've had a few weeks break after our mid-year outlook due to uh, client travel. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, picking it up from where we left off. Yeah, so on that, uh, obviously a lot's actually happened over the last uh, few weeks or so, particularly volatile markets in the M. Uh, we've seen the last week or so a bit of a pause for breath and, and recovery. In our discussions up until this point, we've mostly been focused on that process of ongoing tightening in financial conditions led by the Fed, and that coupled with the slowdown in growth and and now rising recession risk is obviously not a good environment for EM fixed income, which has duly sold off. Um, But the first part of the year, we spent a lot of time focused on the action in EM rate markets, and actually currencies were uh, somewhat stable. This is changed in the recent period and and currency weakness has been much more pronounced. So let's start with what's driving that. Sure. So, you know, since the start of the year uh, in our our research publications in this podcast, uh, we've been documenting uh, the building pressure on EM asset prices from the combination of Fed rate hikes, the tightening of global monetary conditions, and more recently, you know, fears of of a recession. Um, so far, you know, this pressure has been most intense and visible in the fragile parts of the frontier markets, you know, countries that are either stressed or close to default or having to go to the IMF, where poor initial conditions for sovereign balance sheets, meta deterioration of risk appetite and inflation shock and a balance of payments crises for, for commodity importers. But that ongoing tightening of global financial conditions and the continuation of portfolio outflows is now making its present felt uh, much more acutely in local markets. Uh, Particularly in the last few weeks, two examples which stand out are Hungary and Chile, which have witnessed really a classic self-reinforcing cycle of FX depreciation and uh, rising interest rates requiring you know, circuit-breaking policy interventions. And that's something which up until now we hadn't really seen in this cycle. So what kind of policy responses have we actually seen from EM countries in the, these last few weeks? So yeah, in, in, in the case of both uh, Hungary and Chile, it required um, a combination of uh, uh, FX intervention in the case of Chile or introducing uh, new measures to uh, drain domestic market liquidity and provide FX via swaps in the case of Hungary. It also required interest rate hikes, which is really you know, a classic and familiar tool uh, for, e- for emerging market central banks in the face of these types uh, of pressures. Uh, but more generally, you know, we estimated that over the past three months, uh, in the emerging markets, excluding China and GCC, we've had about $100 billion worth of FX reserve drawdown. Now, that's a rough estimate because we need to take into account valuation adjustments, et cetera. 
but I think that's kind of where the ballpark is. And it's actually the fastest pace of FX reserve drawdown in more than a decade. Um, and, you know, the starting point for the majority of EM countries is that they do have adequate FX reserves. Um, uh, you know, if you use a variety of reserve adequacy metrics, at least for the major EMs. So I think there is scope for continuation of deploying FX reserves to help mitigate against pressures on the currencies where, you know, interest rate increases are uh, becoming a bit more difficult for EMs to uh, to swallow or where they are unlikely to be effective on their own without complementary measures. So uh, it's interesting, you mentioned a couple of countries, but given everything else that's going on in global markets, these policy responses to, to EMFX weakness actually haven't had too much focus. So uh, how widespread have they actually been? So they've actually been pretty widespread and probably more than what um, investors uh, might intuitively think. You know, Chile and Hungary, I mentioned, were two very prominent examples in the last uh, few weeks because the price action in the currencies uh, became really very disorderly and required a, a circuit breaker. But beyond that, we have seen uh, you know, more than a handful of countries announce you know, various measures. It's not necessarily all as headline grabbing as what we saw in the case of Chile, uh, which had a $25 billion intervention program. But if you take um, uh, the Asian uh, commodity importers, countries like India, where the RBI announced measures to boost financial account uh, inflows, uh, unveiled international you know, mechanism to facilitate trade in, in the local currency. Uh, we had it in Korea as well, where we had a recent announcement that the finance ministry has agreed to implement some liquidity facility with the U.S. You know, details still to be um, still to be um, uh, released, um, and you know the the national pension fund there is um, beginning to hedge some of its uh, FX assets, um, and you know in in Indonesia where we are seeing. Um, uh, hedging, uh, you know, products, uh, you know, DNDFs uh, being offered at uh, at discount to to regular NDFs. So we are seeing a ramping up of these types of measures uh, across a range of countries. And is it being successful in in stopping the EMFX weakness that we were seeing? Well, the question of success is always one about what might have happened in the counterfactual scenario, but. I guess we can say that these policies have been generally effective in mitigating currency depreciation, you know, given the out relative outperformance that we've seen of FX, uh, you know, thus far. Um, and when it comes to the kind of disorderly price action that we had in the case of um, Hungary and in Chile, you know, policymakers did manage to get a control of the situation. Uh, with decisive action and without causing uh, too much um, too much damage. So, uh, given there's been some success in that, should we look at what we've seen here as a sort of a firm policy backstop for, for EMFX? I this is going to change the direction, which has been one of trend weakness, uh, or is this part of an ongoing macro environment that EM faces and? You know, we're going to continue to see these kinds of stresses, and obviously, some countries may have more risk than others do. So, I think not all markets are in the same boat here. Uh, for those countries that have limited FX 
reserves, they will still have to use conventional policy, which means interest rate hikes, or they might just have to tolerate FX weakness, you know, a bit more. You know, countries such as Egypt or South Africa, for example, they're particularly constrained in using their FX reserves. Even Chile, which had announced a large package recently, or or Korea, um, they are, you know, they're not too much above the minimum recommended level of one on the IMF's um, ARA uh, reserve adequacy met metric. Um, so, you know, in 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 these cases, I think. Um, you know, policies to mitigate FX weakness will really complement conventional policy. It can't really uh, be, a, uh, be a complete substitute. And fundamentally, we know that central banks cannot, um, uh, cannot change the, the trend for currencies. They can, however, lean against the wind when it comes to um, excessive and disruptive volatility. Um, on the other hand, you have countries like, you know, like Czech, which have, um, uh, you know, the largest value amongst the major EMs on the IMF reserve adequacy metric, and they have ample room to support the currency. And, you know, we estimate um, that they have been doing so. Um, but really, I think going forward, it's the countries that have um, a combination of current account deficits and negative interest that are going to face you know, more pressure. We've already seen that take place in Central and Eastern Europe and some of the Asian commodity importers. Um, but I think the LATAM commodity exporters, including, well, Chile I've already mentioned, but also Peru and Colombia could come into the spotlight, especially if concerns about a recession uh, bear down on, on commodities prices. Um, so they're ones I think that are worth watching for here. But Johnny, moving on from uh, the FX markets where we've seen you know, signs of, of weakness, we've also seen signs of capitulation and distress in EM credit markets. China property bonds, for example, have continued to fall and the price action in EM sovereign high yield markets is beginning to look quite extreme and disruptive. The, the recent price moves on the EM sovereign side have seen these lower rated or the lowest rated buckets uh, fall further. And, and that's sort of giving rise to questions about whether this is a bottom and whether we've already seen capitulation here. If you look at, for example, the lowest rated EM bonds, they are now at levels in price, which really have only been seen before uh, in the global financial crisis and the late 1990s EM crises. Uh, you have to caveat here, obviously, the countries as you go back in time get quite scarce. Um, but, you know, those who looked to pick up distressed bonds with prices in the 30s and 40s, now we're seeing bonds, those same bonds now with, with 20 handle or even below in some. So those prices are moving due to combination of higher discount rates, so the rates component is driving the prices lower, but there's also a spread component there as well, and how do you isolate the effects of, of the two? That's absolutely right. Obviously, we've got an environment which isn't typical, where you have both rates rising and spreads rising at the same time, which obviously has a particularly uh, negative impact on prices. If you just look at the spread component in EM high yield sovereigns, it is historically high, 
but it's not actually at the levels that we reached in the last three US recessions. Um, and much of the late 90s, high yield spreads in EM sovereigns were actually higher than this. Um, so, you know, we, we could have more to go if, if we're thinking about that kind of scenario, but it is also highlighting another gauge that people are looking at, which is that relationship between the, the high yield spreads in EM sovereigns and actually the investment grade parts of the market. And what's happening to that relationship between high yield and IG sovereigns? If you looked just at uh, that ratio, so take the high yield spread divided by the investment grade spread for EM sovereigns, most people have been looking at this since the global financial crisis because of data issues. And if you looked at that, you'd say that high yield markets are the highest they've ever been relative to investment grade markets. And that might look like a, a sign of capitulation or oversold conditions. Um, but we've actually looked at taking that ratio back much further. Um, and if you look at it into the, the 1990s, for example, where obviously we had US rate rises, which led to a period of EM stress, which might feel quite similar to current conditions, um, you can see that, yes, our yield is trading wide to investment grade, historically, but it's not unprecedented if you take that history all the way back then. We've seen levels like that in the 1990s, for example. So the common refrain uh, there, Johnny, is the composition of EM has changed over time. We've, we've had the inclusion of GCC countries as well, which changes the nature of the index. Um, how would you respond to that? So the investment grade spreads probably do need to be uh, normalized for the composition change, specifically GTC countries, which just as a reminder, entered the in MB index family in 2019. They're now a meaningful share of investment grade EM sovereigns. So these countries are in GTC, typically low debt countries with large reserves. And even during the recent weakness in markets, oil and gas prices have stayed high. That's meant that spreads on GCC countries have actually little changed this year. Uh, so what we should probably do is look at EM sovereign high yield spread, excluding the GCC countries. And when you do that, what you see is that high yield has sold off versus investment grade but it's not unprecedented and given market concerns at the moment and the sort of macro environment we're in uh, i don't think it looks like that there's you know real evidence that that this high yield has maybe oversold uh, uh given where where those macro concerns are okay so does it then look like to you that em sovereigns have reached the bottom here considering uh, all of these uh, factors? So I think there's probably two conclusions from this. First is that, yes, EM high-yield sovereigns are high. History shows that they can weaken more into a recession. Uh, the ratio is uh, pointing to it, to it, again, is high, um, but it probably is, is too early to call a bottom on where high-yield spreads and, and prices can get to. Uh, but the second thing, interestingly, is the other side of it, which is that actually investment-grade sovereigns look tight. Um, they are tight relative to high yield, and they're actually also tight when you compare them uh, to developed market credit at the moment. So, 
you know, if we think about what could take emerging market spreads wider into a US recession, I think part of that is likely to, to contain a catch up in this investment grade spread level uh, in EM with, with further widening. Maybe back to you for, for one last question. We talked a lot about how we're fitting in these signs of stress uh, into our overall view of where we are in the cycle and those macro headwinds. But just in the short term, we have had some signs that EMFX markets have become oversold here. And how should we think about that against this overall macro environment? And, and should we be reacting to that uh, tactically? So I, I think it's always worth being you know, tactically aware and nimble, but at the same time, um, not losing sight of the, the medium term macro pressures and the cyclical pressures that we're going to be uh, contending with in the coming months. So, you know, while you're right, our risk appetite index did uh, signal that in the short term, we had reached some oversold conditions. Central banks had reacted with, you know, circuit breaking uh, type of uh, policy responses as well, like the ones we discussed a little bit earlier. So I think it is worth taking a little bit um, of those underweights in FX off the table, taking profits on them tactically. But you know, I think structurally, um, the forces of continued Fed tightening and increased concerns about um, uh, a recession on the horizon. Also, downside risks um, from China growth as well. All of those, to me, are um, reasons to have a defensive view uh, on uh, on kind of EM uh, local markets uh, over the next um, uh, you know several months um, on a on a medium term basis. Great. Well, thank you, and, and that brings us to the end of this JP Morgan at any rate emerging markets focus podcast. Thanks, Saad you for joining today and thank you all for listening this communication is provided for information purposes only please refer to jp morgan research reports related to its content for more information including important disclosures 2022 jp morgan chase and company all rights reserved this episode was recorded on the 21st of july 2022